Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. So as um, Tristan, uh, you know, did the welcome, and as he mentioned this morning, this uh, Christian life that we live um, is filled with trials and pain and suffering and struggles. But the Bible also teaches us that those who are genuine believers, those who belong to Christ, will persevere in the faith that regardless of whatever circumstance that we face in life, that we will continue to follow after God, that we'll continue to rely on God, that we'll continue to be steadfast in Him. But the reality is that the only reason why we can continue to persevere in the faith is because God is preserving us in the faith. It's because of God's absolute steadfastness and His preservation of our souls that we can continue to live this way and to persevere in the faith. So as believers, we have eternal security that nothing, nothing can be done to separate us from the love of Christ as we read this morning from our Bible reading. There is no famine, no sin, no weakness, no sorrow, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Because of the everlasting love of Christ, He keeps us safely in His hands as He preserves us till the very end. You see, the very fact that you are convicted of your sin is a way of God preserving your soul. The very fact that you read the Bible and you are amazed at the truth of who God is and that you are thankful and you are grateful and you trust in Him is God's way of preserving you as He draws you to Himself. You see, because if God didn't preserve us, we would spiral in our sin and in our unbelief and in our own self-worship and idolatry, and we would continue to spiral to a point of no return. And instead of spiraling down in unbelief, God is good and therefore He preserves us. So why is this important to understand It's important to understand because if we do not recognize God's preservation in our life, God's preserving work in our souls, then we will tend to trust in our own ability. As we continue to persevere in the faith, we will tend to trust in our own disciplines or our own habits or our own goodness or the fact that we are doing this, this, this and this and all these programs that makes us right before God. So it's very important, therefore, that we understand the preservation of God in our lives lest we fall into sin and idolatry. So even as we have been blessed with a new year and as we think of the year ahead and as we think about how is it that one of the ways in which we can continue to trust in the Lord this year, I believe that Psalm 16 was a great psalm to remind us of the hope that we have that God is continuing to preserve us till the very end. And the way in which we can Trust in His preserving power is by taking refuge in Him. And that's what Psalm 16 is about. Taking refuge in the preservation of God. That we can run to Him daily and trust in His work in our lives. So let's read Psalm 16 and then we'll get into the text from there. So um, Psalm 16, and I'm reading from the ESV, and it reads like this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, and you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand our pleasures forevermore. Even as we begin uh, looking at the psalm in verse 1, what we see is David saying, Preserve me, O God. 
Now when David says, preserve me, O God, he's, he's, it's another way of translating this is by saying, keep me safe, O God, guard me, O God. You see, the, the way in which David is emphatically stating this implies that he's really desperate for God to preserve him. This is not someone who's just simply uh, saying a, a statement just you know, on the side. He's really serious about this. David is desperate. He almost feels like if this is not there, then there is no other hope. If God is not there to preserve him, he has no other hope. And so he desperately needs God to preserve him. But this cry of request is also rooted in the confidence of who God is. Listen to what he says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You see, David's you know, cry and his plea for preservation is rooted in the fact that he can take refuge in God. That is his confidence. His confidence is not in himself. His confidence is not in the fact that he actually just says, preserve me, O God, and these things happen. But the fact that he can trust in God to preserve him and take refuge in God to preserve him. You see, most of David's life was spent taking refuge. If you look at the life of David, um, he was chased by anybody and everybody, starting with King Saul, starting with his army, um, starting with his, and also with his own son in his own family, that David had to seek refuge from God. And you see psalm after psalm after psalm that has been written by David talking about his plight and his suffering as the enemies around him uh, you know, increase and the enemies around him come to get him and he's keeps going back to trusting in the Lord and keeps going back to trusting in the Lord. He does a psalm after psalm after psalm. But in this psalm, when he says, preserve me, O God, it's not just something of an earthly sense. It's more of an eternal sense that David is talking about here. He's not focused on, the, on, the, uh, on his health or in his, uh, eternal, in his earthly um, power as king or in the earthly position as king, but he's concerned more about his eternal well-being, where he stands with God. He's not focused on taking refuge from his enemies. But in verse 10 and 11, we see that David is taking refuge in God for the preservation of his own soul. And so therefore, he writes his psalm. So I've titled this morning's sermon as Trusting, Resting, and Rejoicing in God's Preservation. So in this sermon, in this psalm, we will see that David as much as he says, preserve me, O Lord, that's the only time he says something in terms of a, a prayer or a plea to God. Because the rest of the psalm is David basically recollecting who God is. And he is affirming that by trusting in God, by resting in God, by rejoicing in God. And he's therefore placing his confidence in God. I'll be, I've got three points. Um, the first one is to trust in God's goodness, verse 2 to um, 7. Um, and under that, you know, he delights in the Lord and he basically highlights what does this trusting in the goodness of God look like? And he says, trusting the goodness of God looks like, you know, by delighting in God's people, separating from the world, counting the blessings that he has, resting in God's preservation. And, um, you know, he, the, the second one I've got is rejoicing in God's preservation from verse 9 to 10 and finally resting and delighting in God, verse 11. So let's look at um, the first point of David trusting in the goodness of God. Look at verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, if you pay close attention to your Bibles, you'll see that the word Lord is repeated twice. The first time the Lord is repeated is, with, uh, is, is mentioned is with um, all uppercase. And the second time the Lord is mentioned or it's repeated is uh, with a capital L. Now, the, the word Lord with all uppercase was translated from the word Yahweh. Now Yahweh was the proper name of God. This is the name of God as, as he had revealed himself to the children of Israel. That is, he revealed himself to man. This is a name of God that was so reverential. This is a name of God that was to be feared and to be treated with respect to a point that even uh, the name of God was not written just like that um, you know, in text. It was very carefully considered before it was actually used. And the second term that you see um, is the word um, Adonai that's used for Lord. And it refers to more a personal relationship. It's got the relationship of a master and a slave, something of the sort of uh, intimate relationship that two people may have. So why is David address addressing God like this? Because he understands that you know, God Yahweh is a source of all good. 
But the reason why God is good to him is because of the relationship that David has with the Lord. And David in this context says, I have no good apart from you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my God and I have no good apart from you. How amazing is that, is that when, you, when you think about it? You know, David is really, is, is sort of, um, you know, he's, he's talking about one of the most profound truths about who God is. He's revealing to us one of the most profound truths about the goodness of God. What he's saying is that apart from God, there is no good. By implication, that means that no one other than God is good. Apart from God, there is no good means that no one other than God is good. In Luke 18, 19, Jesus reiterates this truth. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I want us to stop and think about this for a moment because if God is the only one who is good and there is no good apart from God, then everything that comes from God, everything that he says, everything that he does, everything that he gives, as we learn from James 1, is good. And he can only do what is good, and he can only give what is good. And so David recognizes that it is the goodness of God that he's trusting in for the preservation of his soul. He's taking refuge in God by trusting in his goodness. You see, David was saved as he looked forward to the promised Messiah. As we look forward to the king that would come and take away his sin. He was in a sense trusting in the goodness of God that God would send his son and reveal what is good to this world. You see, the gospel is good news because God revealed all that is good to us through his son, Jesus Christ. To people that were the opposite of good, that wanted nothing to do with God. Like I said, if there is anything apart from good, then that means it's bad or there is nothing good apart from God. And we were, who were the opposite of good have been um, revealed Jesus Christ, who is the very definition of good. And it doesn't end there. Because in Philippians 1, 6, it says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning that, again, it's not the goodness of God only that leads us to repentance, but it's also the goodness of God who, which will bring us to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ, till the very end. And so David has absolute confidence in the goodness of God for his salvation and for his preservation all the way to the end. Why is this truth important to know? Because our human tendency often, often causes us to look for goodness of God outside of God. We tend to find goodness in the things of the world. And as a result, we run to the things of the world and place our hope and trust in things that are not good for us. When trials come, when sufferings come, it's easy for us to run to our own solutions, to the things of this world. And it becomes difficult sometimes to trust that actually is God good in this? If that is you this morning, then you need to put aside your doubts and fears. Stop trusting in yourself. Remind yourself of the bigger picture of salvation and the preservation of your soul that God is doing in your life. Because David is laying aside any worldly troubles that he has. And he's solely focused on the big picture. That God is the one who saved him. God is the one that is preserving him. And God is the one that will bring him till the day of Jesus Christ. Till the very end. He's seen the big picture. And so um, David now gives us a few uh, practical ways in which we can... Um, Trust in the goodness of God by taking refuge in him. He, he goes, let's go to the next verse, verse 3. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So firstly, he says that we have to delight in God's people. We have to delight in the saints of the land. Now the saints of the land in this context is referring to God's covenant people who live a righteous life. 
God's covenant people who live a righteous life. These saints live in a way that honor God. These saints live in a way that glorify God and therefore they are called excellent ones. Or they can be also translated as honorable ones because of the way that they live. Or because also of who they are, that they are God's covenant people. People that God has set his love upon, not because there was anything worth in them, but because he chose to love them. So why does David delight in them? Because when he sees the saints in the land that are faithful to God, he sees a group of people who are marked by the goodness of God, who are preserved because of the goodness of God. I mean, if David looked at them, surely he would see their faithfulness, he would see their um, you know, obedience to the word, but he would also see the fact that they were weak people who failed many times. And if it was not for the goodness of God, they would have no hope. But David takes delight in these people. Why? Because they are God's people. Because God set his love on them even though they didn't deserve it. Because through them, God reveals his goodness. Because by preserving them, God continues to show that they are excellent ones. You see, many people, for various reasons, avoid church and other Christians. Perhaps because of trust issues, hurt, conflict, and many other reasons. And then there are Christians who have no love for the church, but simply see it as an event to attend on a Sunday to tick a box. But the principle we must learn from here is that we must love the church. We must love God's people as a way of God preserving us, as he preserves his people. You see, like all relationships, it is easy to see the fault and mistakes of um, one another. Uh, you know, even in our marriages, even in our families, and even in the life of the church. It's so easy to see all the things that are going wrong and all the mistakes. But I think for me personally, in an experience over the last few years of being an elder at GCBC, one of the disciplines that I've learned is to look for the goodness of God in the lives of his people. And it doesn't come naturally because of our sinful tendencies. We're prone to see only what's wrong with God's people. And we fail to see that God has redeemed a people and set his love, on, love upon them when they didn't deserve it, when I didn't deserve it. And therefore, he will continue to do what is good in the lives of his people. And we need to train our eyes to see his goodness in the lives of his people. Not because we've got a perfect, but because we have a perfect God. And so it does take time, and it's a discipline that is developed over time. And we're continuing to grow in that, to see the goodness of God in his people. And what happens when we see God's goodness in his people? We start to delight in them. We start to see what a great God we have. And we start to see the, the work and the gifting and the blessing that they are to us. And to, in the way in which they encourage us, starting from a youngest Christian, or the, most, uh, the, the newest Christian to the oldest Christian, we can always be an encouragement to one another. We can always be a reflection of the goodness of God to one another. And so that's why David is delighting in the saints of the land. Moving on, the next thing that David does in, in, uh, in seeking the goodness of God and tr taking refuge in him is in verse 4. He says, um, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You see, David is trusting in the goodness of God by remembering that there are consequences for following after other gods. Why is that? Because there is no goodness apart from God. He's just made it very clear. Apart from you, there is no good. So the moment that we abandon what is good, we abandon God and we run after other idols, as he says here, uh, the sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. That is what is bad for us. That is not good for us. And the end result is sorrow, pain, suffering, and ultimately destruction. When we run after anything other than God, then it is outside the preserving boundaries that God has set for us. And only leads to pain and sorrow and suffering. Because by design, it is not good for us. He continues on and he says, Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's trusting in the goodness of God. He's just trusting that, okay, you know, I'm not going to follow after other idols. 
but he's going a step further and he's saying, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The drink offering of blood likely might be something to do with um, offerings of blood, human sacrifice or other things that were offered to idols. Keep in mind that God's covenant people were, to, were called out and separated for God from the nations around them that were pagan idol worshippers. And they were to not marry, they were to not associate with these uh, pagan idol worshippers because of what they did. And so he's saying, their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So I will not associate with any of these people that are offering worship to idols or in their worship or in their sacrifice and even a step further or take out their names and take their names in my lips. And he's, he's, he's reminded from Exodus 23:13. It says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. You see, David is taking refuge in God by absolute, and he's trusting in God by absolutely staying away from anything to do with idol worship or with anything to do with the world that draws him away from God. You see, as Christians, oftentimes it's very difficult to keep persevering in the faith. During moments of weakness, uh, other gods, like I said before, seem so attractive. It feels so much more easier to follow the gods of this world. You know, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews and Benoit has been reminding us about the saints that were perhaps finding it easier to go back to Judaism uh, when they face persecutions and suffering. Perhaps in our world, it feels easy to go to our entertainment and career and family and even ministry and relationships and hobbies and quickly make them as a way of uh, idols in our life. You see, when we do that, and it's often very slow, it doesn't happen overnight, we tend to slowly withdraw our allegiance from God. And instead, we slowly start to build and um, have a friendship with the world. And what does James 5 say about the friendship of the world? That it is enmity with God. Friendship with the world and the people of the world is enmity with God. I'm quoting a commentator who says this, Do you find it uncomfortable to be with those who sin openly? Are you troubled by their values, shocked by their desires, repulsed by their blasphemies? Or are you at ease among them? If like Peter, you have no difficulty warming your hands at the fire of those who are hostile to your master, it is because you are far from him. You had best get back to him before you deny him as Peter did. End quote. So David is vowed to separate himself from the world. That's how he trusts in the Lord. That's how he's seeking refuge in God, by not seeking refuge in the world. Moving on to um, verse 5 and 6, David now is again seeing the goodness of God as he counts his blessing. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Uh, if I read this from the KJV, which I really liked, um, I thought it was a better way of translating is, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. You see, I believe that David here is not necessarily recalling uh, material blessings that he has. Although as part of the covenant promise, the land given to the nation of Israel, there was material blessing and there's a possibility that he's also recalling that. But particularly, I think, looking at the whole psalm, David is recalling the spiritual blessings that he has from God and the goodness of God that he sees in that. He recounts his blessing by remembering that God is the portion of his inheritance and his cup. Here's the greatest king of Israel who has no want, who has all the wealth that he needs. And he does not rely, he is not finding his confidence in his possessions, in his wealth, in his power, or any possession that he has as king of Israel. But instead, he is finding confidence in the Lord being his portion. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. Secondly, he recalls that uh, he recalls the blessing of God in that God maintains his lot. It was God who was maintaining him. It was God who was sustaining him. 
In fact, uh, maintaining his lot um, um, refers to also the security that is provided in maintaining what blessings he has received, in maintaining his inheritance. What he's recounting and he's thanking God for is that God is his security in that God is the one who is maintaining the very inheritance that he has, the portion that he has. Thirdly, David counts his blessings by remembering that the lines have fallen in pleasant places. He says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Even through his circumstances and his difficulties, what he's seeing through this very clearly is that the goodness of God causes him to see the blessings of God, that he has a beautiful inheritance. Again, like I said, David was saved as he looked forward to the promised Messiah. He looked forward to the inheritance that one day he would have as a child of God through Jesus Christ. And he's absolutely content with God's blessings. He sees no other need to run to the things of the world. Keep in mind the king of Israel who has the power of the finger. He's got power at the tips of his finger. He's got all the wealth that he needs. He runs to God. He runs away from the world and he finds contentment in God and the blessings that come from God. His ultimate contentment is in God as he trusts in the goodness of God. So we as Christians, we can trust in God's preservation by really counting our blessings. As we see what God is doing in our lives, when we face trials, as we trust daily in God's preservations, we, preservation of our soul, we need to develop a habit of recounting our blessings. How often we don't do it unless, you know, we're perhaps at someone's birthday party or a New Year's Eve prayer meeting or the random occasion that we have where we thank God during a wedding or some um, celebration. But the habit of really counting our blessings and thanking God and delighting in His goodness towards us, it should be a daily way of living. It should be central to our relationship with God as we rely on Him. Because, he's pres- that, because that's the way He preserves us through His goodness. In verse 7 he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So David fourthly trusts in the goodness of God by resting in his counsel and in his wisdom. We know that um, in the Old Testament the Spirit came and went as he pleased. But we also know that the Spirit resided with King David. If you look at the life of King David, we see how um, God spoke to him and God gave him instruction, God gave him counsel as king, um, you know, the reason why David was not caught by Saul was because God gave him counsel, God spoke to David. The reason why David won battle after battle after battle is because of God's counsel to David. Throughout his life as king, throughout his reign as king, he experienced the counsel of God. And which is, you know, when he says in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit away from me, he's not talking about the fact that he's going to lose his salvation, but the special provision by which God would give counsel and God would be his portion. God would, um, he would have fellowship with God. He didn't want that to be taken away. And here he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Because that has been David's experience. He's coming from a place of experience that God has been giving him counsel and he blesses the Lord. He praises the Lord. He brings glory to God for that. And not only that, he says, in the night also my heart instructs me. Meaning that when he was laying down to sleep at night, even then his heart, which is a seat of emotion, was causing him to think about God, was causing him to think about the counsel of God and causing him to bless the Lord. Why is it important to rest in the counsel of God? Because once again, when we go outside the boundary of what is good, and we seek counsel from the world, then we start to trust in the counsel of the world. But when we begin to trust that what God says is good for us, it is good for preserving our soul. It is the means by which he causes us to take refuge in him, to run to him, to trust in him. And it, though, that is the means by which he faithfully preserves us to the end. 
As Christians, the Lord's counsel has been revealed to us through his word. You know, David in this psalm really, is, it's a prophetic psalm. And, and it, this is so special as David's even writing this psalm because that's God's counsel to him as he is writing this. You know, and we as Christians, as God's people, have the written word now that is available to us, that we can read in a language that we can understand. And God's counsel has been revealed to us through his word. And as we read the Bible daily, you know, there's a tendency for us to just, you know, read it as information, to read it as knowledge that is to be gained and comprehended. But David's example shows us that it must not stop here. What he does is he blesses the Lord for his counsel. That's what he's saying. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. You see, the truth of God's word must cause us to meditate in our hearts deeply on who God is, his character, his nature. The reading of God's word is not a tick that we must be ticked as a checkbox to say we've done the deed for the day. No, it must cause us to ponder upon who God is. And it must lead us to bless the Lord for his word. To worship him, to praise him, and to thank him. It must be in our hearts and our lips all the time. That's why we memorize scripture. Even as we wake up, even as we go to bed, our heart should instruct us in God's word. And as we allow the truth of Scripture to permeate our hearts and dwell in it, it produces a heart of worship to God. Worship is not something that just is produced when we sing songs or some sort of emotional reaction to something. It comes from a deep knowledge and fellowship with God. Knowledge of who God is and deep fellowship with Him as we trust and meditate on His Word. He continues in verse 8 and he says, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David is now, he's basically summarizing everything sort of he said in verses 2 through to 7. And he says, because of all that's there, because of the fact that I have no good apart from you, that I delight in the saints of the land, because I will not partake with those that follow after other gods, because I will continue to delight and remember and count your goodness towards me, and because I will trust in your counsel and bless your name, what does he do in verse 7? I bless the Lord. I have, in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And that is what it produces in David. An absolute confidence in who God is. But it's not really dependent on how he's trusting in the Lord. It's also dependent on how God is preserving him. Because as we've been looking at the previous verses, we see that God has been on David's right hand. We see that God has been showing his goodness to him. We see that God um, has been giving counsel to David. We see that God has been, has, you know, David is relying on, his, uh, on, on, a, on uh, the, uh, the, he says, Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He's relying on the blessing of being part of God's family and that's God's way of preserving him. So he's not relying just on his own works and what he's saying he will do. He's relying on what God is also doing in all of this. And he's considered all of these things and he says, I shall not be shaken. He's trusting in what God's doing. He's affirming his commitment to God and he says, I will not be shaken. You see, David is confident in the Lord because he's confident that God will preserve him both in this life and the life to come. He's confident that God's got him. God's got me. In a way that a little child holds the hand of their father or even lives in absolute confidence that their father's got them as they jump off the roof of their car. That's the confidence that David has, that God's got me. This is the confidence that every saint who has martyred for their faith in Jesus as they face certain death had, that God's got them, that God's preserving them. And as Christians, this is the confidence that we must have in the preserving power and the finished work on the cross. We must have this confidence in God and a commitment to Him. You know, as Christians, we can sometimes have a misplaced confidence, don't we? You know, when it comes to trusting God, we can uh, acknowledge, yeah, the Bible says that God is faithful and God is good and, um, you know, He deals uh, gently with us. But when it comes to trials in life, when it comes to circumstances, somehow 
those things seem to go out the window and our first protocol is our own wisdom and to trust that, okay, what can we do to solve this? You know, I'm so thankful for, uh, you know, my wife who, you know, even at, you know, when we're in a parking lot and trying to, you know, we're trying to find a car, parking spot, uh, you know, I'll be looking for parking spots and she'll be the one reminding me, have you actually prayed for one? You know, it's even as simple as that, running back to God's providence, God's preservation in our life. When we say we trust in the Lord, do we actually live that way? You see, the knowledge of God and the truth about who God is should grip our souls. It should grip our hearts. And it must cause us to not change our thinking. It also causes us, therefore, live out that thinking in confidence of who God is. Moving on to our next point in verses 9 to 10. And David is now considering all of this and he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing in the preservation of God. He says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. In verse 9. Like I said at the start, this psalm, unlike any other, any other psalm that David's, or other psalms that David has written, is special because this preservation that David is pleading for is not for the preservation from his enemies or other kings or other uh, people that are after him to kill him. But this preservation um, request or this plea that he has for preservation for, is for the preservation of his soul. It is for something that is eternal. And now that he's confident in God's preservation, he's saying, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. You see, this is the biggest celebration that you could imagine that David has in this, in this psalm. That, that he is, he's saying, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. He is so happy about the truth and the confidence that he has in the preserving power of God, of his soul, of his life. Even his flesh that one day will die and rot is dwelling secure in the confidence that God will preserve him. It's not just that God will preserve him in this life, but that God will also preserve him in death. Because he says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. That even this body can dwell secure in this life and in the life to come. One day when we are with King Jesus, when he will be with King Jesus. Look at verse 10, for he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. So his rejoicing, in one sense, as, he, as we look at the section from verses 1 through to 8, has to do with um, what he's thinking and meditating about God and himself over there. But in another sense, this rejoicing has to do with what he's about to say in verse 10, as we just read. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. He's glad... And his whole being rejoices and his flesh dwells secure because God will not abandon his soul to Sheol. Now Sheol is a term used, um, you know, uh, it is it, translated as the grave or the pit. In general, in the Old Testament, it refers to the place of the dead. This is the place where one is cut off from the land of the living. Yet unlike hell where... Um, you know, which is a banishment, absolute banishment from the presence of God. Psalm 139 verse 8 says that Sheol seems to be a place where um, God's presence exists. Psalm 139 8 says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So Sheol seems to be a place where the righteous and unrighteous exist distinctly and consciously. And David is confident that when he dies and he goes to the presence of God in Sheol, God will not abandon him there. God will preserve him there in his presence. What a great assurance that is. He said God's preserving power is with us both in life and in death. You see, God's preserving power does not end when we die on this, in this earth. But it continues on. It continues on forever. And we will see in the, next, in the next verse what that looks like. Look at the second half of verse 10. He says, For you will not let your Holy One see corruption. 
Corruption here refers to bodily decay or the decay of the physical body. Now David knew very well that when his body died, it would decay and he would decompose. But he's saying my flesh dwells secure because he has confidence in something. What is that? Let's read Acts 2, 25 to 33. And uh, Peter here gives us a, a, a better understanding and interpretation of what this means and why David therefore has the confidence and ha- the fact that he's secure uh, in what he's about, what he's saying there. First, uh, Acts 2, 25 to 33, and it says, For David says concerning this, I saw the Lord always before me now. So you know, he's quoting Psalm 16 here. He says, For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So he's quoting Psalm 16 there. And then he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath with him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned, abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted, exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, poured, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what is David's confidence? What is his Uh, Why is his heart glad and why is his whole being rejoicing and why is his flesh dwelling secure? Because by faith, it was revealed to David, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at what Peter says. Being, in verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath with him, he foresaw, foresaw, verse 31, and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor his flesh see corruption. David foresaw that. By God's grace and by faith, David was able to understand and have confidence in the resurrected Savior. That he would not remain dead, but that he would rise up again. And David has confidence in him. You see, David has confidence in the ultimate preservation of his soul because he was confident in the resurrected Jesus. You see, when David or any other saints died, their body continues to decay and decompose and corrupt. But Jesus was the only one whose body did not decay. Why is that? Because he rose from the dead. The reason why his body did not decay was because even in that, death had no hold on him. His body not decayed showed that Jesus was Lord over death. That he was a resurrected savior. You see, this messianic aspect of this psalm is profound because then it completely changes our perspective of the rest of the psalm that we've just looked at from the, from the beginning. It gives us a very real sense of how God preserves his people till the very end. It gives us a real sense of understanding that you know, he set his love upon us and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so David is rejoicing in the fact that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he has now hope and confidence that he too one day would be raised from the dead. And praise be to God, what a blessed hope that we have as believers. Moving on to our last verse and our last point, David now understanding all these things about God's preserving power in his life. What does he say? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, David now gets to the ultimate and final price that a Christian can ever attain. Fullness of joy in the presence of God and enjoying God's godly pleasure forevermore. You see, as far as David is concerned, all this preservation, what's the purpose in all of that? Ultimately, so that God would bring his chosen people into his presence. To enjoy him forever, as was God's design for us. You see, God's guarantee of preservation leads us to eternal life with him in his presence. 
If sin brought death and separation from God, then through the preserving work of Christ, our eternal life and entry into his eternal presence is guaranteed and secure. The ultimate reward that is guaranteed for every believer is fullness of joy. The earthly joy and gladness, and keep in mind, David has really tasted and seen what the Lord is good. He's, he's such a, David's got such an immense intimate relationship with God. But even the earthly joy and gladness that David has experienced will be nothing compared to the fullness of joy that he would experience when he's finally with God. You see, that as Christians, or biblically speaking, that what's the difference between joy and happiness is that happiness is rooted in our circumstances. It's an emotion. But joy is not rooted in our circumstances. Joy is rooted in truth. It is, as Graham was mentioning this morning to me, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And it is rooted in truth. You see, the truth of who God is informs us, and it is the truth of God that produces the joy in us. Which means that even when we are suffering, even when there is death, even when there is sorrow, we can still be joyful because the truth of who God is and the confidence that we have in Him can cause us to rejoice in Him even through the worst of our sufferings. So can you imagine what David is saying here? In your presence there is fullness of joy. That is finally when we are with Jesus, there is fullness of joy. If, if the joy that we have in the Lord where we live in this earth is informed by the little knowledge that we have about God, imagine when we are in heaven and we will have the answers to all the questions that we ever wanted to ask. When we will have all the knowledge that we ever needed to know available to us about God, how much of joy would that produce in our hearts? What a great day that would be. What an amazing day that would be when we finally understand God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and how they meet. What a, what a glorious day would be when we finally understand the Trinity and how that works. I say this in jest, but what an amazing day will be when we and our covenantal friends find out that the church hasn't replaced Israel. You see, it's a wonderful day. It'll be a day of great joy. It'll be a joy or day that you can't even describe, you can't even imagine. And David's got that in his mind as he's thinking about all of this. He's running to God to preserve him because he's longing for that day and that's what he has in mind, to be in God's presence. You see, our future doesn't just end with the fullness of joy. David reminds us that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The same God that David said was on his right hand counseling him, as we saw in... Um, in, um, in verse 8, he says, you know, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. And this same God that David is saying is on his right hand and is now saying, at the right hand of God, there is now pleasures forevermore. You see, God is at David's right hand preserving him. God is at the right hand of his children preserving us as we live this life on this earth so that ultimately when we are in his presence, we will be at his right hand enjoying pleasures forevermore. Can you imagine a world free from sickness and sorrow and pain, but more so a world free from sin, where the, the, even the, the love and care for one another that we have in heaven will be so perfect. There will be no longer broken relationships. Can you imagine that you could eat a piece of fruit and enjoy it so much and find delight in it so much that even the most pleasurable thing that you could experience in this earth wouldn't even compare to it. For those of us struggling with our health, can you imagine that there will no longer be joint pains and surgeries because we'll be, have a perfect body free from sickness and pain and sorrow. And that in that we can delight in God. There are pleasures forevermore. And it's everlasting, it doesn't stop. Even as I was writing out this section of the sermon, I, I was just experiencing just my hairs rising up in my arms and tingling sensation, just out of the sheer joy and anticipation of that day that we will be in the presence of God. You see, as we come to the conclusion of the psalm, how do we respond? How do we look at this? You see, I believe this psalm technically should start from the last verse and work its way up. Because it's only when we see 
the end result of what God's preserving power is doing in the lives of his children, that we can truly trust in the Lord. As we see the end result of what God's preserving power is doing in our lives, it should cause us to turn away from our trust and confidence in this world. It should cause us to abandon any hope that we have, any confidence we have in the wisdom of this world and the understanding of this world and the distractions of this world. Because guess what? When finally we are with King Jesus, everything in this world will be destroyed, along with its people, along with its knowledge, along with its understanding. And Christ will reign forevermore. And we will reign with him in his presence. And that is what matters. So what do we do? Let's lay aside our pursuit of the world and let's follow Christ. Let's put our refuge in him. And let's trust in him that he is continuing to preserve us till the very end. Let us have confidence and rejoice in the finished work of the cross. In the same way that David looked forward, the cro- looked forward to the cross and trusted in the finished work of Jesus. Let's look back at the cross and rest in the finished work of Jesus preserving our souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for just the wonderful privilege of being able to see that it is not in our own strength, but in your strength that we are preserved. It is not in our own strength but in your strength that we are carried through till the very end. Father, we confess, Lord, for the times when we have trusted in ourselves, trusted in our own wisdom, trusted in the wisdom of the world, and followed after other gods, and gone out of what is your design for good for us. And Lord, even as we begin this year, Lord, we pray uh, that you would do that work in us, in drawing us to yourself, in helping us to delight in your people, in helping us to turn away from the things of this world, in helping us to recount our blessings, in helping us to seek your counsel and to delight and to, and to bless your name in that, that you would cause us to be those that are thankful, those who are filled with thanksgiving and rejoicing and praise unto your name, that we as a church would be a people that are marked by the goodness and the love of God, that even as the world sees us, they would see a people that are different, a people that have no, uh, that are not uh, grounded in this world, a people that are uh, that reflect uh, a greater hope that they have, a people that um, um, have their eyes fixed on you, that they would see the difference, and that they would uh, it would be a means for us to tell them about you. But we pray that you would, by your strength, uh, enable us to do this, knowing that. Uh, you're the one who's preserving us. So we pray and we ask that you would continue to build your church and your people. And we give you all the praise, honor, and thanks. In Jesus' name we pray.